y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, NPR producer Justin Richmond and NPR reporter and Code Switch host Shireen Marisol Miraji. All right, let's start the show. Y'all know what I'm playing right now. Oh, this is one of the best Kanye song opens maybe of all time. (laughs) Brilliant. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Each week, the show starts with a different song. We'll talk about this one very soon. But first, I got to thank my two guests for being here with me today in studio. Shireen Marisol Miraji, she covers race, ethnicity, and culture for NPR. Mm-hmm. Also hosts NPR's Code Switch podcast. And Justin Richmond, producer extraordinaire for a show you may have heard of called Morning Edition at NPR. That's right. Thank you both for being here, and thank you, Kanye, for this lovely, rousing anthem to get us into this show. The beat knocks. Oh, it does. I'm going to need to see you to your pants at the concert. Profit, So this song is called Monster. It's from Kanye's classic album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And I'm playing Kanye this week for a reason. Mm. Not just because it's always a good time to play Kanye. Um, have you guys been following his tweets this week? Yes, oh. I have. Yeah. Oh my God. I've so, been inspired. Right? So usually, so for the last long time, Kanye's been pretty silent on social media. But this week he came all up back in Twitter. And he's been posting some very inspirational tweets. Like Truth. these. Yes. Quote, Distraction is the enemy of vision. Another one, everything you do in life stems from either fear or love. My favorite from the week, quote, be transparent as possible. Stop setting plays. Stop playing chess with life. Make decisions based on love, not fear. Mm. Life coach Kanye. Yeah. Thank you. I, I like this Kanye. You, right? I didn't even know I was playing chess with life. <laughs> I wish <laughs> well, I had are. known that. <laughs> Checkmate. So Kanye also at the end of this week tweeted out that he's going to put out a new album on June 1st. But with his last release, he pushed it back a lot. So I wouldn't trust it totally, but maybe we'll see an album before the year's out. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a monster. One of my favorite songs of his, and I want to say possibly the best Nicki verse. Oh, yeah. Definitely the best Nicki verse. All right, you guys. Shireen and Justin are here with me today to look back at the week of news, culture, and everything else. Let's get into it. We're each going to describe how this week of news felt for us in three words. Okay. Uh, Justin, do you have three words? If so, go. I have three words. What are they? We've been waiting. That's actually four because it's a contraction. It's fine. <laughs> but, yo, but, yo, but it's, come on, man. I'm going to let it slide. Cheating. Go ahead. Cheating. I mean, maybe I should just say I've been waiting. I don't want to throw That's everyone. That's still a contraction. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> a, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. Okay, been waiting. go ahead. Go ahead. First of all, I've been waiting since Comey testified in front of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, for his book to come out. You, uh, really, you have? Yeah, because I was like, as soon as it, like everybody else? No, I mean, I didn't pre-order. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm a, I'll tell you once you're done, but I have not been waiting for this book, and I'll tell you why, but please, you go ahead. Please. Why have you been waiting for the book? Uh, when he was testifying, I mean, it was clear. It was like, man, this dude's going to write a hell of a book. <laughs> and so, I mean, at first I was a little salty because I felt like this feels a bit tacky. Maybe he should have waited a couple of years. Yeah. A few <laughs> years, five years. But then as I was listening to the Fresh Air interview and a couple of others, and he's saying that he's basically comparing our president to a mafia boss. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's stunning. That's drama. You can't. That's drama. That's stunning, Can man. Can I tell you my beef with Comey, though? Let me hear it. Um, I've seen him way too much this week. He yeah. has been everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Times, MSNBC, NPR like five times. Yeah. The View. I mean, he, like, and he's back. On, yeah, 
Because the memos came out. Oh, yeah. Who's posing with Method Man and Ghostface Killer? <laughs> Backstage at Comey. Was he yes. really? Everywhere. So this is my question. Does Jim Comey want to sell a book or does he want to have a legacy? Yeah. And he's just, he's in this really interesting position. He has no constituency. Liberals still think he lost Hillary the election. Conservatives still think he's out to get Trump. Like... What does he get after this besides a best-selling book? He just wants to control his own narrative, I think. That's what he wants to do. Yeah. He wants to say, this is my story, and this is the way I want to tell it. Because y'all are telling my story for me, mm-hmm. so at least I'm going to be on the record. And, and it's just hard to know who's who's being petty here because of all of this. Who's being petty? They're all petty. You know? <laughs> I did so, learn on that Terry Gross interview that he likes to say lordy. <laughs> <laughs> but we knew that from when he testified when he said lordy. Oh, yeah, lordy. lordy. I hope there are tapes. Lordy. All righty. All right, my turn. My three words are who's in charge. Mm. And I say that this week because there have been a few stories, storylines coming out of the Trump White House that have me asking the question, who's in charge? First one, have you guys been following this stuff with Nikki Haley uh, and the Russia sanctions, yeah. possible Russia sanctions? Yeah. So Nikki Haley is Trump's ambassador to the U.N., and... After um, U.S. and allied strikes in Syria, she announced that the U.S. was going to institute some more sanctions on Russia for their involvement in Syria. She said it was going to happen on a Sunday morning talk show. And then another member of the administration came out after that, Larry Kudlow, Trump's economic advisor, and said, she's confused. Hmm. Then Nikki came back and said, hold up, hold up, hold up, quote, I don't get confused. <laughs> yep. Literally sparring between two members of the same administration made me say who's in charge. Second instance where I said who's in charge was um, this news that Mike Pompeo, who is now director of the CIA, might soon be secretary of state. Um, he made a secret visit to North Korea months ago to possibly negotiate a lot of things. Uh, The meeting went very smoothly, he said, but we just found out about it this week. You told me Dennis Rodman. I would have believed it. (laughs) (laughs) So the third thing that had me saying who is in charge was this report in the New York Times, which the White House denies. Um, The report basically said that Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis actually wanted the White House to get approval from Congress before those strikes happened. And the White House and Trump said, no, I want to do it myself and do it big. Uh, The White House denies this. But after the Syria strike and all of that back and forth, we also found out that Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, he said that he was the one that convinced Trump to actually care about Syria. Hmm. Who was in charge? We needed Charles. In charge of yeah, our days and our nights. Someone's got to be in charge. Of our wrongs and our rights. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Right. With that, Shereen, what are mm. your three words? My three words are tall, black, cafecito. Tall, black, cafecito. Yes. I think this is the first time we've had a word that is not English in three oh, words. Oh, well. I like it. Explain it, though. Okay. So it's a Starbucks order. Mm-hmm. Because Starbucks has been in the news all week. Yeah. Because of the incident that happened in Philly at a Starbucks where two African-American men were arrested for sitting there without ordering something. Yes. And 
and Starbucks CEO, Kevin Johnson. His name is Kevin Johnson. Not the Kevin Johnson that used to play for the Sacramento Kings. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Mayor um, Sacramento. Yeah. But his CEO, the CEO came out. Uh, he apologized. And he said, hey, we're going to do racial bias training. A whole day. For our employees. All the stores closed. That's right. 8,000 yeah. stores are going to close. I'm not sure if it's a whole day or a half day. Okay. I, I couldn't get okay. that straight. But, yes, they're going to close for some time, for mm. some hours, to do racial bias training. Yeah. So Tall Black Cafecito, or should it be Tall Baylack? Cafecito. Why Baylack? Because Bay, Baychella, I have my little Are you gonna whistle, whistle here? Shereen <laughs> <You don't. laughs> got a yellow Where's whistle up in here. Come on. <laughs> okay, so what Shereen is talking about is Beyonce's set at Coachella, which featured a historically black college and university theme. black marching band theme. Yes. So it starts with this single woman snare drummer and a whistle. Oh, amazing. I have the chills. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> I have the chills. So her Coachella set, one, she was mm. the first black woman to headline Coachella. Exactly. And two, mm. she played for two hours. Yes. And she did not let the crowd forget that she was the first black woman <laughs> yeah. to headline Coachella. She was like, by the way, <laughs> just in case you didn't know. Yeah. And, you know, and Coachella's been around for 19 years. So mm-hmm. that's a long, a time. long time. So Gaga was the first, I think, woman to headline last year. Oh. Uh, and now Beyonce. Beyonce should have been. Beyonce was supposed to play last, last year. And then oh, she got well, pregnant. Yeah, so again, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. But, you know, I mean. I must say, like, I've seen Beyonce live, and I was like, this is the best show of my life. Mm. But every year or so, she upstages herself. Mm-hmm. Y'all all saw it, right? Yep. Yes, of yep. course. It's, oh my my gosh, wife made I've me been... watch it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I've been trying to get the choreography to the do beginning some. of Crazy in Love. Okay, but you have to have, like, squat power. Okay, do it. Oh, wait, no. I'm okay, don't make me dance in here. This is radio. The listeners can hear that. But actually, getting back to the news, getting yes. back to the news, she did, and speaking of HBCUs, she yeah. did announce that she was going to have a $100,000 uh, scholarship fund, which oh. was, so 25000 that was earlier this week, $25,000 is going to go to four different HBCUs uh, to give to a student for scholarships. So that. great, she's man. about it. Oh, she is about it. I got to say, Oh, wait, too, I'm not man. done, by the way. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Okay, just real quick, because... <laughs> Tall black cafecito. I love hearing you keep saying that. It's amazing. Cafecito, because, you know, when you're ordering a Cuban coffee, you say, Uh, un cafecito, por favor. uh, There's some Cuban news this week. So And there's some Cuban news, and I won't step on that because I know that's the main story for the show, but... Uh, Cuba's got a new leader. That's not going to be a Castro. That's not going to be a Castro. For the first time in a long time. And I'm going to say all his names. Don't get Say it. Please do it. All his names. Miguel Mario Diaz Canel Bermudez. (laughs) Wow. Perfect. Oh, my goodness. So I dare you. I dare you. I can't do that. Um, We are going to talk more about Cuba a bit later. Uh, Right now, we're going to go to a little break. Coming up, we're going to call up a former police officer and get his perspective on uh, that Starbucks arrest incident. Uh, Also, we're going to debrief all about Cuba's power transition this week. And, of course, we'll play my favorite game, Who Said That? You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Gelmar CLR. Whatever you call your home, Gelmar knows you take great pride in keeping it clean. That's where CLR comes in. CLR dissolves calcium, lime, and rust all around the house using natural ingredients, not harsh chemicals. It even carries the EPA's Safer Choice seal. Keep your little piece of the planet looking its best with CLR, making the world a little cleaner. 
This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests today, Shireen Marisol Muraji. She covers race, ethnicity, and culture for NPR and also hosts NPR's Code Switch podcast. And Justin Richmond, producer on NPR's Morning Edition. You guys, before we get back into the news, I got a quick question for you. It involves a rather strange story I saw this week. Um, Mm -hmm. An eighth grade teacher teaching social studies. He got in trouble in Pennsylvania recently. Uh, Last week, his students were taking their statewide standardized tests, and he wanted to be nice, and he made them pancakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Supervisors found out. So good. Yeah. Yeah. They said they were going to fire him. For making Because it was against policy. You can't make your kids food. You can't make your kids food. So the students protest, the parents protest. breaking my heart. They reinstate the guy. This teacher's name is Kyle Byler. He's back. But it got me to thinking. What would you want to eat before a standardized test or a live radio hit or something stressful? I mean, I think oh, protein, man. something with protein. I actually think pancakes are a bad idea because <laughs> yeah, they, have a lot of, they have a lot of gluten. <laughs> oh, they make you tired. God. You know, so I would like some eggs, probably just egg whites. Yeah, that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to roll egg whites, in California. egg whites and some avocado. Okay. Right. Matcha okay. latte okay. with some water. Y'all oh. know what I want? What do you want? Shot of whiskey. Oh, oh yeah. Lord. Sure. <laughs> Lord. Where's our whiskey right now? I know, right? Uh, Anyway, uh, now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance, where we call a listener and talk to them about the news. Seems like every week there is another story in the news about how police officers relate to people of color. Mm -hmm. Earlier, we discussed in the show the story you mentioned, Shereen, about that Starbucks in Philadelphia where two black men were arrested while just waiting there in the coffee shop for a business meeting. And a few weeks ago on this show, we had a big discussion about shootings involving police. That was after the shooting death of Stephon Clark in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. So we had Wesley Lowry on from The Washington Post, and he said a thing that really stuck with one listener. Wesley said that, legally speaking, all an officer has to do is really just say that they felt their life was in danger. And they are allowed, basically, to kill someone. And my first reaction was, wait a minute, that's not right. And then I realized, well, there, that, that could be right. That is Dave Hill. He was a listener. He lives in Orange County, California, just down the highway from us here in Los Angeles. Dave was a police officer in Southern California for 30 years. He retired as a lieutenant, and he got in touch with us after he heard that episode, said he wanted to talk. So we did talk about the Starbucks incident, and so many stories, not just of arrests, but of police-involved shootings. The law does say that if an officer is in fear for their life, then deadly force is, a, uh, is an allowable option. But I also know I received some specific training in how to articulate why you were afraid. Mm. Um, and I remember vividly the uh, trainer was reading from a, a police report in which the officer was describing all the details, the, the weather, the lighting, the actions of the suspect, what they were saying, how they were acting, their body language, to paint a picture. So the most obtuse member of any jury could listen to that report and say they, as much as they could, they experienced that with the officer and come away with an mm-hmm. understanding of why the officer was afraid or in fear for their life. Yeah. Do you think that imperative on officers 
to quote unquote paint a picture. Does that ever, in some cases, perhaps give some officers license to exaggerate? That's a good question. I I think um, since we recruit from the human race, there might be that tendency. Uh, I I can't speak to that For sure. uh, in anything I've observed. Okay. Yeah. There's a particular news event this week that I'm wondering if you have thoughts on as well. I'm talking about um, that story from that Starbucks in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I see this as a civilian, as a black man, and I'm just befuddled by it. Right. Is there a way in which you see that scenario in which it made sense? Not necessarily. And I can only speak from a position of experience with California law. Yeah. It didn't seem like there was any kind of dynamic situation that needed immediate action and immediate decision-making. This yeah. was something where we could have, you know, slow down, talk to these people, find out what's going on, share what the options are. You know, if, if a shopkeeper absolutely wants to press charges, talk to them about the consequences. Are they willing to go to court? Do you realize this is a nonviolent situation? Uh, you know, in the best interest of the people we go to church with, the people we you know run into at the store, how can we live this situation in the future or similar situations? Well, we need to have the conversation, and that conversation yeah. might be to close your Starbucks for you know your 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 company for a day, and talk about and and, and be honest and be vulnerable about what's in your heart and how you can best yeah. you know, live your best self, if yeah. you will. Yeah. If you were to be in charge of creating an anti-bias training for police officers, as a former police officer who's been out there doing the work for, what, 30 years, what would be the number one thing that you would include in a police anti-bias training? You know, I, I go back to when our the department for which I worked uh, started to become more diverse um, I, I realized that I was uh, I was growing. My heart was growing in different ways. My mind was growing in different ways from interacting with people uh, of different color, maybe officers who came from backgrounds of traditionally marginalized communities, and, and that was very eye opening. But I'll tell you what happened to me was after I left uh, law enforcement and went into private business, and I worked with people from all different backgrounds. And no longer was I an officer; I was one of the one of the folks. Mm. And being exposed to mostly younger people, but some of my age and they're around, um, who came from different backgrounds, different communities, different color, different sexual orientation, different lifestyles, whatever you want to call it. They were just different. And it was great to interact with them because it, it humanized them and mm. it helped me to develop relationships as opposed to, you know, categorizing relationships over categories, I guess is the best way I could say that. Yeah. Do you think, you know, as someone who was in it for 30 years and watching it now, do you think the relationship between police officers and particular marginalized groups of people in America, is it getting better? In my corner of the world here in Southern California, I believe they are. Okay. But I'll tell you this also. I, I just read Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm. And I was particularly struck by his words about the white moderate, and that hit a little too close to home, um, and how instead of rising up with King's um, nonviolence movement, the white moderate of that era said, you know, you're being too controversial, you're, you should wait, you know, rights will come, give it time. And it just kind of feels like in a lot of ways, we're, we're still there. So 
I wish I had a, a really good answer. And I think it comes down to if, if the thin blue line still exists, we need it to be between all of the, the good people and those that would do the good people harm. And all of those good people need to include officers, civilians, all races, all colors, all creeds, all religions, all backgrounds, marginalized or mm. not. And that only comes from having conversations and interacting and getting to know people so that it's not, you know, it's not your black neighbor or your Muslim neighbor. It's your neighbor. Mm. Yeah, I love that. What are you going to do for fun this weekend? I am building a, a little block wall. My wife and I are teaming up to build a block wall out in front of our house. And huh. uh, not only makes the house look nice, but it also uh, provides for a little bit of exercise. <laughs> okay. If you can consider that fun, that's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> that actually sounds pretty fun. Um, You're welcome to come over and help if you like. We're only your Belinda. It's just a quick shot down the pen. So. <laughs> I'll be there, but I'm quite clumsy and not that handy. <laughs> um, I want to say, Juan, thank you so much for writing in to the show and for listening. Thank you for being so thoughtful uh, on these really tough issues. And I don't think this comes through enough in coverage of these police issues, because when these stories pop up, we're talking about the few bad apples, not the majority of good ones. But yeah, yeah. as a civilian, I am grateful to police all over the country who every day are working to protect people like me. And I want to make that clear. So thank you for your service. Awesome. Well, thank you. And, and uh, Sam, I'm glad we had this conversation. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Dave Hill, the retired police officer out of Orange County, California, for that call. The thing that I always realize when you break these events down, it's like people individually can make the right decision. But something about some of these events and a conflagration of certain factors, it leads to like something that's explosive. What struck me about what he said in your interview with him was that it wasn't really until the police department diversified that he started meeting with um, different officers and people yeah. from quote unquote marginalized communities that um, that he was able to humanize them. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me that, yeah, you know, and so uh, Jamel Bowie actually wrote for Slate on this about white spaces and mm. how this particular Starbucks was in, in a, a very part of white Philly that was 79% white and only 6% black. Yeah. And that we need to talk about white spaces and and what happens when you're a person of color um, and you're in a white space. Yeah. And I think that, like, you know, his perspective, being in Southern California, like our perspective, it's just more of a mashup. Yeah. And I think that, like... I am privileged to live in a part of town and live in a place and work in a place that is really diverse. But I think we forget that most of America is pretty segregated still. But also the fact that, like, why aren't we thinking about people as humans, period? It should. You should be able to empathize with people that you haven't met. It's easier said than done, though, right? True. I mean, but, I think some of this stuff is just, like, tribal and almost biological, this kind of in-group, out-group urge. Yeah, and maybe I'm influenced by growing up here, like you said, where there is a whole bunch. I mean, so it's, it's, it's I mean, maybe easier for me to say than, than you know, I'd have grown up elsewhere or, you know, yeah. I'd have been a white guy growing up somewhere. Listeners, I want to talk to you about how you process the news. If you have a reaction to something you've heard on this show or any story you've seen in the headlines on any week, let us know. Drop me a line at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. 
You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests today, Shireen Marisol Maraji, host of NPR's Code Switch podcast, and Justin Richmond, drinker of matcha lattes and also a producer on NPR's Morning Edition. I'm fancy. I'm fancy. Matcha latte and Morning Edition. I'm sorry. All right, you guys, it's time for our main story. We want us to talk about Cuba today mm, because Cuba. there's something really big there happened this mm-hmm. week, big symbolically at least. Yeah. Uh, Raul Castro, brother of Fidel, he stepped down as president this week, and he handed off power to someone outside of the Castro family. That new leader's name is... Miguel Mario Díaz-Canel Bermúdez. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I want us to talk about a few things who this guy is, and what it means. And I want to point out to our listeners uh, that this is important. I think that we don't see Cuba in the headlines a lot, but Mm -hmm. it's important because Cuban-Americans have been a force in Florida politics for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cuba could be a part of diplomatic relations all through Latin America, especially with Venezuela. And Cuba is a nation that America's opponents, like China, and Russia want to get a bigger foothold in. So, you guys, before we talk about Cuba, I think we have to acknowledge that maybe a lot of Americans, a lot of listeners, don't think about it that Mm, much. mm -hmm. How would we describe the last 20 years for Cuba and its relationship with the U.S., I guess, for those folks? Well, it's gone back and forth. I mean, 20 years ago, we were still, you know, maintaining the hard line against Cuba that we had for the 30-plus years previous, uh, keeping the embargo against them. And, of course, with President Obama came the detente, and that opened things up a bit more. We opened up our embassy, and people were able to travel there freely. Um, Our president actually went down there, which is the first time in a long time that that had happened since the revolution that that had happened. Um, And then, of course, now uh, that President Trump has come back in, he's crafted a Cuba policy with hardliners in Congress to basically repeal parts of the Obama detente. And now we have a pretty limited embassy there. And it seems like we just are not thinking about it. Um, Justin, you've been covering this story for your show, Morning Edition. Morning Edition, yeah. What have you found out about Miguel Diaz-Canal Bermudez? So the most interesting thing about him is that there's not a ton known about him. And I even <laughs> spoke to various government officials who've met him. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's from a city called Santa Clara, about three hours outside of Havana. I've been there. He is an engineer by training, got okay. a college degree in engineering, did his obligatory three years in the military, then joined the Young Communist League, where that's really where he started taking off in terms of uh, politics. He kind of rose the ranks there pretty quickly and became the minister of education in okay. Cuba, all of Cuba. Um, became the vice president in 2013 and kind of has towed the party line and has been able to take over now because he's done that. But Raul Castro will still lead the Communist Party in Cuba. Yes, until okay. his term for that is up in three more years, and then he'll, okay. yeah, he'll step down from that too. Because and, Raul and, Castro instituted term limits a few years ago. Hmm. Yeah. So eventually, Diaz-Canal will head the party and the presidency. And the presidency, exactly. Gotcha. Just like Raul and Fidel had done before. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Well, that's the thing. Like In his speech, when he assumed the presidency, he said in his speech, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. You know, like, and he kind of, mm-hmm. he kind of paid reverence to the Castros mm-hmm. and in a way almost said that like they're still in charge. Yeah, well, it, because so, and, and this is what's interesting. Um, in one way, he's positioned himself as different because as a lot of people will note, he's a fan of the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. And, and he's he younger. uses technology and he's younger and, and he's born after the revolution. And his kids were in a rock band, <laughs> which, is, which was 
illegal in Cuba for a long time. Huh. They didn't like rock and roll. But um, in many ways, and I, when I was talking to Ben Rhodes, who uh, was an Obama advisor and, and kind of helped, uh, it was basically like instrumental in the detente that happened under Obama. What he was saying was that the main challenge for Miguel Diaz-Canal is going to be to craft a narrative for the Cuban people. For 59 years, it's been the revolution. Castro. They've been yeah. able to sell the revolution. Castro and Raul, mm-hmm. as p- members of the revolution, people partook in it. He was born a year after the revolution. Huh. You know, and so he needs to create a narrative and it might be easiest for him now to keep selling the Castro legacy to people because things aren't great there. So people need a reason to believe and it might be easiest for him, at least at the time being, to just keep hanging on to the the Castro legacy and and selling that. Yeah. You know, so this power transition happens uh, about a year after Donald Trump rolled back a lot of what Barack Obama did to try to better the relationship between Cuba and the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, He resumed diplomatic relationship between the two countries. He eased some travel and trade restrictions. Uh, Trump came in and said, no, 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 no. I want to take it all back. Um, in and reality, take his, all of it back, though. Thing. Thing. Yeah, his bark was bigger than his bite, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of those changes were, were small changes, but have had a huge impact on things like tourism there. I mean, you can still go to Cuba as an American, but you can't you plan your own go. private trip. You can't you plan go your own private group. trip. You gotta go with the group. Mm. And even that, you, I still know people who are, you know, I won't call them out, but who are still going private. I mean, there's ways around that yeah. even. No, they're always happening. Um, you know, so, but there's this bluster possibly from Cuba, for sure from Trump, but some of those Obama era changes they've stayed the embassies are still open um limited staff limited staff of course yeah yeah. but like um cubans can still travel freely cuban americans between the island and the u.s they can still send money back and the business community after trump announced his rollback they kind of pushed back and said don't close off business you know don't don't close us off yeah Yeah. there's money to be made there you go they're still negotiating that stuff Yeah. Yeah. yeah business deals i want to talk a little bit about what a positive or better relationship with Cuba could do for the U.S. We've known for some time that there has not been a really positive relationship. But I talked to a few folks this week who said, if we did have a better relationship with Cuba, we could get something out of it. There are a few things. One, if the U.S. really wanted to fight drug trafficking in the Caribbean at the port of Miami, which is a big point of entry for a lot of illegal drugs, Cuba should possibly, probably be at the table, right? Hmm. Yeah. And they were at the table for the Columbia FARC negotiations. That's the they thing. helped with that. This is the second thing. Like, Cuba is a player in Latin American geopolitics. As Justin said, they helped negotiate the end to the civil war in Colombia. The thinking is that they could help negotiate with Venezuela, you know, if, mm-hmm. if we were friendly, right? Yeah. And then the third thing, which I mentioned earlier, um, Cuba it could be a point of entry for Western influence for Russia and China. Yeah, um, and Russia and China are they're warming back up to Cuba for a long time. They're just they hadn't been. I mean, China and Cuba's relationship has always been a little fraught, but mm-hmm. they're going in there now and agreeing at least agreeing to invest in infrastructure. Russia's doing the same thing again, which is it's, hasn't been since the early '90s that they've done that. Um, so you see the influence slowly creeping in there. Yeah. And, the dissolution uh, it, of the Soviet Union. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly. And like, meanwhile, Russia docked one of its intelligence ships in Havana a few months ago. Yep, and they're considering reopening a spy base, their old spy base there. Really? I didn't yeah. Know that. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I am really interested in Trump's posture towards Cuba. And what that says about the state of American politics and how much Cuba actually matters 
to American politics, I would say right now Cuba doesn't matter too much. No? Well, I think that if Trump's stance towards immigration Mm. is upsetting Cuban voters enough that they won't go to the polls and vote for Republicans, Mm. I think that that matters. I mean, that's not necessarily about what happens with Cuba, but I do feel like Cuban voters have been strong Republicans since the beginning. And um, President Trump's immigration policies have upset all Latinos, including Mm. some Cubans who Mm -hmm. have been rethinking whether they should vote for Republicans or not. So I think in, in that way, Cubans maybe are important and what Trump says about immigration is important. Yeah. And it seems as if a lot of Trump's rhetoric on Cuba and this rollback of the opening from him, it is meant to appeal to this conservative Cuban-American base in South Florida. Mm-hmm. But it's also meant to appeal specifically to Florida Senator Marco Rubio. I really think that's mostly what it's for because, really? it, I mean, new generations of Cuban-Americans seem to be less interested in maintaining the hard line against Cuba that we have for the last, I mean, nearly the last 60 years with some interruptions. Um, but a lot of our, our Cuban-Americans in, in the House and in the Senate uh, still maintain that hard line. And, you know, it was just easy for Trump to defer to them to uh, figure out his Cuba policy. And when you think about Cubans, Shireen, I mean, of course, we have to be fair, Cuban-Americans and Cubans themselves, they're not a monolith politically at all. I mean, like, the later you came to America from Cuba, it affects your thoughts on these issues. And you were saying to me earlier this week that your race as a Cuban could affect it too, no? Talking about Cubans and race is really complicated, as we say all the time on Code Switch. (laughs) So early on in Cuba's history, this is before the revolution, there was really this push to whiten up Cuba. Mm. And um, it's Blancamiento. Blancamiento is what it was called. And so, and then after the revolution, this diaspora of Cubans that came to the United States, they really considered themselves white. And they were also from, you know, upper middle class, middle class high economic backgrounds. And and these are the Cubans that really originally settled and voted Republican and have been the dominant Cubans in the United States. The diaspora since mm-hmm. is much browner mm. and it is much poorer. Huh. And I think that the way that Cuban people are treated in the United States is different. And I think that that- Than white Cubans. Yes. And okay. I think that that's going to affect how the different waves- vote and how they are voting. Yeah. And so when you say that Cuba's not a monolith or Cubans are not a monolith in the United States, no, they're not. Yeah. And um, I think you're going to, you're seeing a browning mm-hmm. of... Of Cuban America. Of Cuban Americans. Well, and then I think we're also seeing perhaps Donald Trump is overestimating the strength of Cuban Americans as a voting bloc in Florida, period. As the Latino population in a state like Florida becomes more diverse, no one nationality of Latino really has a lock anymore, no? No. I mean, Puerto Ricans, first of all, Cubans are the fourth largest Latino group in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they're they're centralized, they're very centralized. Mm -hmm. And in Florida, yeah, things are changing. The demographics are changing. Puerto Ricans are coming yeah. in. You have Venezuelans, Puerto Ricans especially, vote huh. Democrat. So yeah. it is changing things. It's and, changing. And they are not, they're still a powerful voting bloc. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's not. Let's be real. Yeah. Anyways, so I guess for me the big takeaway is 
this power transition in Cuba is a good time to remind ourselves that even though we might not think it is all the time, Cuba is important and worth talking about and worth discussing. And it also, I think, can give us a view into the way that Team Trump works. And he kind of, in many ways, when it comes to global affairs, reverts to this older kind of Cold War mindset. Good guys, bad guys, and America is a strong man. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll play my favorite game, Who Said That? And we'll also hear from you, our listeners, sharing with us the best things that happened to you all week. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message is brought to you by the new Netflix original documentary series, Wild Wild Country. When a controversial guru builds a utopian city near a small town in the Oregon desert, a conflict with local ranchers ensues. As tensions rise, neither group will back down, leading to a series of events, including the first bioterror attack in U.S. history. Wild Wild Country, now streaming only on Netflix. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Justin Richmond of NPR's Morning Edition and Shireen Marisol Maraji of NPR's Code Switch team. You guys, since this is our kind of Kanye-themed episode, I want to mm. give you one more inspo Kanye tweet. This one's my favorite. Quote, as a creative, your ideas are your strongest form of currency. Oh. Boom. That's true. I like it. Ball so yes. hard. Can I draw my favorite Kanye tweet from this week? Please. Do it. This is my favorite. Truth is my goal. Controversy is my gym. I'll do 100 reps of controversy for a six-pack of truth. See, I didn't get that one. <laughs> Yo, that's like, that is so yay, and I, I just, I appreciate that. It made no uh, sense That's the old yay. I love it. You guys, now it's time for my favorite game. Ooh, who said that? Who said that? It's called Who Said That? I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that. Okay. Or at least get close, name the story, topic. Just get, get in the general yeah, I'm area. I'm ready for this. If you win, you get I'm nothing. not because we've been working on our podcast all week. I know. I've been working too, but I'm ready for this. I, I, stay, I stay ready for pop you culture. You know what, though? We'll it see. doesn't matter because the winner gets absolutely nothing. Okay. Oh, I know. It's all good. Damn. First quote. Ready? Mm. First of all, that album belongs to the people. Kanye. Uh, no. Kendrick Lamar. Another rapper. Uh, it's a Kendrick. rapper. No. Oh. A, a rapper about that an album, album that's ever to the people. An album that has been uh, hidden for like a year or two now. Wu Tang. Yes. Uh -huh. Wu Tang. Yes. So that was Method Man. He was on the Colbert Show this week, and he was talking about this mysterious Wu Tang album called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. <laughs> uh, they made this album, and I think they sold it to the highest bidder which happens to be Martin Shkreli, a.k.a. Pharma Bro. This was mm -hmm. the guy who got in trouble yes. for defrauding investors. So they made this album a long time ago, or they made this album recently? They made this album a few years ago. Oh, just a few he, years but ago. But they sold, they, they sold the, the, the one copy of it. He bought it, but then he went to prison yeah. because he was doing weird things with drug prices. 
Um, but defrauding investors. Defrauding investors. Yeah, yeah. But now that Shkreli is in federal prison, officially this Wu-Tang album belongs to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. <laughs> oh, no. oh, I hope it's he's bumping that hard. Oh. <laughs> M-E-T-H-O-B. He might change the marijuana <laughs> policy now, too. He's like, yo, let's make that legal everywhere. <laughs> so Jeff Sessions has this mysterious Wu-Tang album mm-hmm. now. And now members of Wu-Tang Love are saying, that. release it. Justin, you're up one to zero. Shireen, you can bring the funk. Okay. I believe you. Oh, I don't know. Okay. I'm not really good at this kind of competitive stuff. I Justin is like stuff. shaking. <laughs> <in his laughs> like, he's so competitive. I love it. Okay. All right. Next quote. Yeah. I had just persuaded a dog to let me put her into polka dot pajamas. I not know. my dog. Mm. When I heard the news, I didn't believe it. A dog put me in polka dot. It's about a certain award that was. Um, Announced this week. The Pulitzer? Yes. The Pulitzer? The, the Pulitzers. Uh, so this was Andrew Sean Greer. He won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction this week for a comedic novel called Less. Hmm. It is very rare for a comedic novel to win this prize. It's also rare for Kendrick to win for music for his rap album, Damn. Very so Radical. Pulitzer's going out there this year. I kind of appreciate it. Um, also, I want to see a photo of the dog in polka dot pajamas. Yeah. Anyways, it's tied 1-1. Shereen didn't even get the name. Uh, I said Pulitzer. I'm oh, leaving it here. Really, At least you said a really Pulitzer. I like it that Pulitzer. way. Pulitzer. <laughs> Pulitzer. Ready for the last one? Yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah. Quote, mm. I will say this over and over. Mm-hmm. This material does not need to be in a populated area, period. Who said that? This material does not need to be in a populated what's, area. What's a certain kind of bodily material that you never want to be around? Velcro. Ka-ka. What? Oh. Kaka? Yes. <laughs> So listeners to this show will know that we have been following closely the story of the poop train. Oh, yeah. That story has come to an end this week. So there's a town in Alabama Mm -hmm. named Parrish where a train brimming with sewage sludge has been just sitting in the town. Uh, NPR's NPR's Colin Dwyer wrote, for upwards of two months, a train brimming with sewage sludge has been squatting uninvited near fields used for youth baseball. He had to do that. He had to do that. Simmering in the afternoon (laughs) sun, making its noisome presence known even in the darkness of night. In a word, Mayor Heather Hall told the AP earlier this week, it smells like death. So after weeks of dealing with this smell, the poop train has moved on and gone to its final destination where it will be buried in a landfill, so that first town parish is going to get some relief. Congrats, parish. All right, who won? I won. Shereen, Shereen won. won. Congrats. Stop Pulitzer. saying it. Or should I say Pulitzer? Pulitzer. 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 I love it. I love uh, it. Uh, that concludes Who Said That. Mm. Congratulations, Shereen. You get you. nothing Shereen, but pride. Shereen Marisol oh, Maraji. Marisol Maraji. Yes. You guys, the end of this. so much pride. All right, y'all, now it's time to end the show. As we do every week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Anjali, hit the tape. Hey, Sam. This is Joy from Charlotte, North Carolina. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that I started a new job on Monday, but I'm calling you from vacation in Hawaii. <gasps> wow. My new boss didn't even want me to bring my laptop. Aww. Good boss. Woo. 
Hello, this is Chris from Corville, and the best thing that happened to me this week was getting to watch my wife Jess run and finish the Boston Marathon on Monday. Whoa. Wow. I found out that I got into my number one grad program after being waitlisted for Ooh. over a month. Congrats. A band that I joined two years ago is releasing an album. Mm. Oh. Send it to us. This week, my daughter and I took a seven-hour road trip from Vail to Salt Lake City to go see our first Justin Timberlake concert. Huh. Oh, yeah. My son, Sean, had his Eagle Scout Court of Honor, and my parents were able to witness it in town from Chicago. Aww. The favorite part of my week was getting to the episode of The Real Housewives of Atlanta uh-huh. where they all say, who said that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey Sam, this is Carol from Brooklyn, New York. Hey Carol. The best thing that happened to me this week was at 12.01am on April 14th, my birthday, Happy birthday, my boyfriend stood up in the bar and had everyone at the bar many of whom I didn't know, <laughs> give me three cheers, hip hip hooray for my birthday. Awesome. Hi Sam, this is Lex in Charlottesville, Virginia, hey, hey. and the best thing that happened to me all week was watching my 19-month-old son dance and play around at a festival that was taking place this past weekend in Emancipation Park, Wow! which was the site of the Unite the Right rally last year. Um, and just watching him have the best time and playing around and having a blast dancing to the music, surrounded by people of all different races and cultures and identities. Uh, it was really amazing. That's and awesome. Just, it's the sort of memory that I'm going to take with me when we unfortunately move away from Charlottesville in the next month. Uh, that's, that's the Charlottesville I know and love. And it was really beautiful to be reminded of that. Thanks. 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 Have a great week. Bye. All right. Thanks to all the voices you heard there. Joy, Chris, Rory, Jamie, Mary, Sarah, Holly, Carol, and Lex. Listeners, we listen to all of these you send in every week, and we definitely enjoy all the animal photos we get, too. The dog pics, the cat pits. I'm still waiting for a ferret picture. Oh, are you? I would love one. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for sharing. Send us more whenever you want. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Sam Sanders at NPR.org. Before we have Inspo Kanye take us out, I want us to pay tribute to a man whose voice you've known for decades. Talking about Carl Castle, longtime NPR newscaster, also judge and scorekeeper for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Carl died Tuesday from complications from Alzheimer's disease in Potomac, Maryland. He was 84. Carl was a good man. I knew him a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, I Peter, loved him. Loved him. Yeah. Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, he said of Carl Castle, quote, he was kind down to his bones. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Truth. Carl will that. miss you. I heard that in his voice. Yeah, yeah. With that, it's time for some more Inspo Kanye. He's going to take us out. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Inspo Kanye. Thank you guys so much. It was fun. Thanks, Thanks Sam. Sam. Uh, this week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And editing this week came from Jeff Rogers and Allison McAdam. Our big boss who keeps us in business is Anya Grundman, VP of programming here at NPR. Oh, yeah. We love Anya. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning. I got a chat with novelist Meg Wallitzer. She has a new book out. It's called The Female Persuasion. I liked it a lot. It's on everyone's must-read list this year. And already, the book's just out. Already, Nicole Kidman has signed on to star in the movie of this book. Oh, wow. There yeah, we go. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. Can't lose with Nicole Kidman. I cannot lose with her. All right. Also, one last announcement. You don't like Nicole Kidman? <laughs> I was going to say something. Big up Nicole Kidman. Say it. 
No, I was just gonna. No, I'm not gonna. Do anything. <laughs> Keep there. Also, listeners, we announced this in our Tuesday episode, but if you haven't heard yet, I'm taking my happy self to the home place of Kanye West. Gonna be in Chicago for Ooh. a live show next month. Shout out, man. Yeah. Together, I love it. Home of Kanye, home of good things, good food, and good people. I'll be there May 15th for a live show with some special guests. Come join me. Go to wbez.org/events to buy your ticket. It's going to be fun. Eat some Puerto Rican food while you're there. Oh, okay. Huge Puerto Rican community. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Will y'all come with? Yes. I would love to. Done. On it. All right. Until we see you in Chicago or talk to you in your earbuds again, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Pull up in a monster automobile gangster with a bad bad that came from Sri Lanka. Yeah, I'm in a tanker, color a Willy Wonka. You could be the king, but watch the queen conquer. First.